you're familiar with that hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, you might remember that the final verse talks about leaving this earth and heading to heaven and saying farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. You know, there is, we know when we enter heaven, uh, we won't be engaging in communication with the Lord like we are here. We'll see Him face to face. Won't that be a blessing? Uh, we'll be with Him and uh, know Him. But till that time, God has given us the wonderful opportunity to fellowship with Him. And a key uh, instrument in doing that is through prayer. You know, it's not just uh, bringing our list of, you know, here's, here's my wish list, Lord, or here's my problem list, Lord. And God wants us to bring those concerns. He wants us to, to ask for our daily bread and, and ask for forgiveness and all those things. But really the, the, the kernel, the core of prayer is spending time with God. And I don't know about you, but I find that uh, I have to be very careful to make sure that Prayer time doesn't just become a repetitive thing, but it is something that I engage uh, very intimately the Lord in. And that goes to right to what we're talking about today as we worship God in spirit. I think one of the biggest challenges that this congregation uh, ever has faced in our nearly... 22 years of existence as a local church was trying to compensate for a fire that took place in this building a little bit more than nine years ago. Uh, the, the smoke and water damage was the most extensive part, although the fire did eat up a significant part of our structure and had to be replaced, but we were displaced and for about six months or so, and it came with its difficulties. It was a challenge, but I believe, personally, it came with its set of blessings as well. Among other things, it reminded us that our identity as a church was not limited to our location. You know, I, I realize, okay, that... If you talk about Anchor Baptist Church, you know, and people ask, where do you go to church? You know, you're going to give them directions to this location so that they can gather with us. And we're very thankful for this facility. But this facility, as nice as it is, is not a requirement for us to have in order for us to be a church. We are still Anchor Baptist Church, even when we met in alternate locations. It also taught us that the worship focus did not need to be impeded, handicapped in any way, simply because we weren't in familiar surroundings, you know. You know, we didn't have this beautiful piano and this nice organ and you know, the, the different things that this building gives to us, which I am very thankful for. And it does help and does, uh, you know, do many things for the worship. But can we worship without those things? And we found out absolutely. I don't think it was something that we 
disbelieved. I don't think it was anything that we had to you know, be taught newly about, but it freshened it in a very positive way for us. And I think it is important, as we talk about worshiping the Spirit today, that is that we worship always be from our spirit. But what does that mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit? I want to just look at three texts. The first we read today in Philippians 3. And the the first point from this text is this. Worshiping in spirit involves taking heed and taking hold. As we read through those verses, I think Paul was trying to remind the Philippian believers certain things about what they needed to be on guard about and certain things that they needed to very intentionally grasp onto as well. For instance, if you look down at your Bibles at verse 1, you'll see that Paul urged the believers here in this verse to rejoice. But if you were to do a a quick perusal of the book of Philippians, you would find that the concept or the theme of joy and the command to rejoice is repeated numerous times in this text. And, you know, maybe by the time the the first readers of this letter in the town of Philippi saw this and said, okay, Paul, we get it, right? You're telling us again to rejoice. But that's why... He even says here that the idea of the the repetition or the same things. He says, I realize I'm repeating myself. I'm telling you the same thing again. But it is not intended to be grievous. It's not intended to be a burden. I'm I'm not harping on this. And it wasn't that way for Paul. In his mindset as he was going to go over some things here, It was because he knew it was necessary for their spiritual well-being, or as he says here, that they would be safe. Not safe from physical harm, but in a more important category, safe spiritually, safe in their mindset with regard to how they engage God in their worship. Being able to genuinely rejoice, means also keeping up our guard in certain areas. And that's what he hits in verse 2. You see those bewares. Caution. Alert. Danger, you know, we could say. He's definitely trying to arouse their concern level. And that reminds us that to genuinely rejoice means that we do have to keep up our guard in certain areas, don't we? We can't just go tra-la-la-la-la along the way and just think that, you know, this, this world is, you know, harmless. It's not harmless, folks. Satan is not harmless. There are things that we need to give heed to. Things that we need to be vigilant about there. He mentions this idea of dogs. Well, that's an a, a analogy, if you would. What does he mean by being aware of of dogs? Well, I might suspect that if he knew my dog, he might be talking about him. You know, you do need to be aware of him. He probably won't bite you, but, you know, he might be so excited to see you, he might leave a deposit on your shoe. But that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is telling us to be alert to 
disconnected individuals who prey on the vulnerable. See, in the, in the context of the era in which Paul lived, dogs roamed free. Now, we know that they, they ran in packs often and so forth like that, but, you know, feral dogs, if we could put it that way. And it was very common to see them running about, and they were okay with that. It kept some of the other undesirable things away as well. But they could be a detriment to you. You know, you definitely watched your small children if these dogs were around. And so sometimes the pagans were talked about as the dogs, the Gentiles. You know, they're not necessarily part of the Judeo culture and the religious worship system of that day. And so he starts off with that. Be careful of these. They might be philosophers. You know, coming, you're hearing this person that's just arrived back from Athens and he's talking about some speaker that he heard speaking in the Agora there in the marketplace. And it comes back and it's interesting and it's fascinating. But it's totally detached from any of the authority of Scripture. And people are vulnerable if they're not grounded in the doctrine of God's Word. And he says, if you're going to worship me, if you're going to really be able to rejoice spiritually in your walk with me, you've got to be very careful about these disconnected individuals who will impact vulnerable people. And let's not necessarily think that we are not vulnerable. No, that's them. No, it could be you. It could be me. We need to be cautious. Secondly, we need to be alert to appear to be pious, but deceitfully working iniquity. Those people that appear to be pious, but are actually deceitfully working iniquity. These are the evil workers that he's talking about next in that same verse, verse 2. There are people like that out there. You know, they're, uh, they have a religious shell to them. They may have a humanitarian concern to their deportment and how they conduct themselves. But in fact, underneath it all, they have an evil agenda. They are not just. They are not fair. He then also mentions about being alert to those who emphasize outward religious practice but neglect heart devotion. That's what he means by the concision. And that's a derivative of circumcision. Well, we understand that to be Jewish, one of the things that God had ordained was that the men were to go through the, the rite, the outward practice of circumcision. And so it was God-given. It was right for them to do that. But unfortunately, as often as the case, they gave a wrong emphasis to this. Well, if, you've, if you have that, then you're part of the club. You're, you must be okay. And so they began to let fall to the wayside really the more important things. And you would have people that would do this. They would have a religious practice. And this is where the Pharisees were. This is where the Sadducees were. This is where some of the scribes were in their walk. They were not genuine. 
These all abuse the religious system that God has rightfully established in His Word. According to verse 3, he says, We, Paul's including himself in this, right? And the believers of Philippi, when he says we, we are of the circumcision. He's, he says, I'm, I'm writing to some of you who are Jewish in your background and your upbringing. You're Christians now. We're not going to say that that's a bad thing. No, that was all of God. And, and, and as a result of that, that helps us to do several things here. And even though we, we truly belong to the religious system God has established, we still might not have the right focus. You, you might be in the right denomination. I'm Baptist. You might think, well, that's the right denomination to be in. Or I'm in the right local church. I'm glad you're here. But you could be in this church and not necessarily have the right focus. So notice the right focus begins with today's action of worship. But it is also partnered with two other closely related needs in our life to make sure that we are truly worshiping as God would have us to do. He mentions worshiping God in spirit. Well, let's begin to take that one. And we'll follow that again through some other texts this morning. But what does he mean here, especially in this context, by worshiping in spirit? And I think what he's trying to emphasize is, is that we all need to have an inward passion to intimately promote God. And of course, we understand by the, the idea of a spirit. On the outside, our shell, it's physical, right? And it's very easy through muscle memory to go through the right things outwardly, especially the longer we've been a believer, longer we've been in church. You know, it's almost autopilot for us to do the right things when it comes to worship. But the jeopardy there is that it's also easy for our mind to disengage and to not be doing it where it really matters the most. I want to ask you a question. You don't need to answer it out loud necessarily, but just think about this. Can you worship God internally without there being any outward manifestation of worship? All right, now that you had a chance to think about it, let me ask you it again and answer it out loud. Can you worship God internally without there being any outward manifestation of that worship? Yes or no? Absolutely. Imagine someone who is mute, quadriplegic. You know, they're, they are just, they have very limited or maybe no motor skills or any ability of outward expression. But maybe they, their ears and their mind and everything is engaged and they, they love Christ. That person can worship Christ every bit as effectively as you and I can. Say, well, they can't sing. They can't clap their hands. They, you know, they can't do this. They, no. But again, worship really most fundamentally needs to be an internal thing. And it needs to be something that is a passion for us. And I would hasten to say, if there isn't a passion, then we need to be doing some exploratory work. Search me, O oh God. There's something that's not right because by default, 
When the Spirit of God takes up residence inside of us as believers, there should be His passion that He brings with it. So we may be, and probably are, stifling, or as the Bible uses the word, quenching the Spirit of God. So do we have that inward passion? And when I say intimately promote God, it may not be like a broadcasting to a large group of people. That's part of it. One, one of our, our brothers was recently sharing his, his testimony, and he was saying after he got saved, because he was with just one other person, he got back to a location where there were lots of people, and he got out of his vehicle, and he's like looking at everybody and says, guess what, I got saved today, you know, and just that, that reflexive reaction. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit, and that's the passion that he brings with inside of us. That is worshiping God in spirit. Legal worship is outward. And it always consisted in outward acts. Sometimes it restricted to certain times, certain places. But Christian worship is spiritual, flowing from the inworkings of the Holy Spirit, not relating to certain isolated acts, but embracing the whole of life. That's what Romans 12:1 is all about. Hey, it's your reasonable service. Give yourselves as a living sacrifice. Just give Him all of you. This describes the believer, as Paul talks in Galatians 5.16, about walking in the Spirit, living, having your conversation in the power of the Holy Spirit, which again is connected to your spirit. Not just how you are a pedestrian through your daily life, but how is your very life internally throughout the day? And he says there, if you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you are so engaged, you're so yielded to the Holy Spirit, you're so living out your passion for Christ and intimately promoting God, guess what? You'll be like, I didn't have time to sin today. <laughs> in fact, it, it wasn't even all that attractive to me because I was just having this you know, praise celebration with Jesus all day long everywhere I went. That guy cut me off. Yesterday I was ready to ram into his bumper, but today I was like, bless God, you know. Albert Barnes said, if a man would yield his heart to those influences, he would be able to overcome all his carnal propensities. And it is because he resists that spirit, in a way he shouldn't, that he is overcome by the corrupt passions of his nature. We really, without realizing it, maybe are resisting God's Holy Spirit inside of us. And we need to give in to that Holy Spirit. You can't have it both ways, folks. You know, can I, can I, can I sit on the fence and get a little bit of, you know, allow a little bit of my flesh to, to have control and then, you know, share a little bit with the Holy Spirit? No. It's not that way. Really worshiping God as we move about our daily life is the best remedy for falling into sin. I mean, you come to me and you say, Pastor, I'm struggling with this sin. I'm, this is a besetting sin in my life, you know. You know, can you give me some verses that specifically attack that particular problem? I'm like, sure, we can do that. But let me just tell you, 
no matter what the sin problem is. Because your sin is always connected back to your flesh, right? Do we understand that? Your sin is always connected back to your, your natural desires. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when sin hath conceived, it bringeth forth death. We understand that progression, hopefully, in our Christian lives. So, yes, learn those verses, because if I had God's word in my heart, I will not sin against Him. That is true. But let's not leave out a more foundational element, folks, and that is be so celebratory, so busy promoting Christ, passionate about promoting God in our lives, that we're like, why would I want to walk away from what I'm enjoying here? Right? Think about something else that you really enjoy. It could be, you know, some sort of, you know, sports activity or whatever like that, you know. Remember Brother Rob when he was with us, he was golf and we would joke and he would always say, yeah, I think there's golf in heaven, you know. And of course, he's been with the Lord now for some time. And, you know, and I remember one of his, his wish was to go to the Masters and he got that opportunity to go to the Masters with his son and, you know, and I can just imagine someone coming up to him as he's standing, you know, right there on the, on the rope, right there on the fairway. And there's one of these pro golfers, and they've just, you know, teed off, and it's landed, you know, within just, you know, seven feet of where he's standing. And then, you know, someone comes up and taps him on the shoulder and, and says to him, hey, you know, we're... We're watching uh, the latest football game over here under these trees. You want to come over and watch that? Yeah, You wouldn't pull him away from that, would you? Shouldn't that be the position of our hearts that we're so engaged in our love and our walk with Jesus and the Spirit of God? You're like, no, go, get away. I am having too much fun right where I am here. We need to have an inward passion that intimately promotes God. We also need to let a celebratory spirit rise out of our relationship with the Lord. kind of builds on that, and I've already kind of uh, touched on that in some of the things I just said here, but he says rejoice. This is the next phrase he says in verse 3, right? Rejoice in Christ Jesus. Literally, it's the idea when it says rejoice, make your boast. Make your boast in Jesus. The Old Testament saints understood this. In Psalm 44, 8, it says, In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. You know, we do very um, casually and camouflaged boast about ourselves from time to time, don't we? You know, and I'm reminded of this. Sometimes I'm like, you know what, that just as I shared an idea I just after I get done with it, sometimes I think I just felt like I was putting too much Carl Wood into that, and it's it's ultimately it's not about that, you know. If I if there's not a footnote there, you know, giving credit or whatever like that, you know, doesn't mean. Hey, what it ought to be is, do people spending time with me? Do they get more excited about God, about my Lord? That ought to be our focus. In God we boast all the day long. In Luke 19.39, the Pharisees urged Jesus to silence the people 
Because they were praising him. It's the triumphal entry, right? I mean, we've all seen that scene, the palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna. You know, they've just come off of the Mount of, uh, you know, of, they've, they've come back into Jerusalem and so forth like that. And then Jesus, in Luke's Gospel, Luke 19, verse 40, He turns to the, to the Pharisees that are really reprimanding this going on. And He says this, If these, He's talking about the people that are praising His name, If these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Don't you love that? These inanimate rocks. Right? They're just going to automatically going to be breaking forth in praise. What a picture that is. What we experience of our Lord daily should result in a passionate promotion of God. We ought to be better than a bunch of dumb rocks, in other words. Thirdly, we need to be extremely skeptical of any effort that relies exclusively on personal accomplishment. He says, no confidence in the flesh. Now, he's stating all of these things as this is the state of where we are. But, you know, even as he says that, that doesn't mean that they were doing it perfectly. Or he wouldn't be reminding them this. But he was, he's, he's coming along, not flattering, but saying, you know, you already know this. And that's why I started off this way of saying, I'm, I'm reminding you and, you know, I'm not trying to grieve you, but it's for your safety and you're, you, you already have heard this, and you're already doing this, but it's so critical. That's why I'm coming back to this. And so be very skeptical. Don't have any confidence in what relies exclusively on your personal accomplishments. Now we know we have to do things. You know, God wants us to pick up our feet and move them and use our hands and use our lips and our mouth. So we are doing stuff, there is, but we don't want to rely exclusively in those accomplishments. You may think that this unending focus on Christ throughout your day is a little bit overkill, maybe a little unnecessary. But you may think you can just say no to your wrong inclinations, right? You know, if, you know, if I'm tempted, I'll just say no. Or kind of almost the same thing. Get thee behind me, Satan, you know. And I'm not saying that Satan doesn't need to be rebuked, but I come back to fundamentally the, the scriptural recipe is yield to the Spirit. Don't get in a shouting match with Satan. That's not how we're supposed to do it. We just, you know, Satan, I don't have any time for you right now. I'm sorry, you know. I'm too busy in love with my Lord. Talk about making Satan angry. He would love for you to engage him. He would love for you to get in a, a shouting match with him. You know, but the point is, if we do get into a debate with our flesh or with Satan, at some point, mark it down, you will crumble. I don't know how many, I don't care how many Bible verses you know, I don't know how, how, care how long you've walked with the Lord, if you're doing it in your flesh, doing it in your strength, in other words, you will crumble. Do not put confidence in it. Be skeptical of what you imagine you can handle. We do well. We are wise when we have that level of skepticism. Paul goes on to give an impressive list of credentials that most people would take hold of, but he is taking heed of these things. Right? Isn't that how we began? Of you know, what we take 
hold on, you know, but also taking heed of. And so he's probably in most people's minds they're thinking, okay, I need to, yeah, those, those dogs and things like that. But then he's talking about some things that people walk around and are very glad are true of their lives. A lot of religious people are glad about. Accomplishments. Pharisee of the Pharisee, a Hebrew, all these spiritual things, zeal with the law was blameless. You know, we kind of sprain our arm, patting ourselves on the back with how godly we seem to be. And Paul says, no, be cautious, take heed. He says, there was a time in my life, verse 7, where those things were what to me? Gain. That was my goal. That's what I live for. That's what got me up in the morning. That's what carried me through the day. And as I put my head on my pillow at night, I would say it was a good day if I felt like I checked most of those boxes, right? But notice he said they were, past tense, gained to me. Not anymore. Now what are they? They're loss. The Greek word zomia literally means a detriment. Not just wasted, which we typically think of when we hear the English word loss. But he says, now I look back at those things, and if I allow myself to kind of lean on those things, because Paul still could do that, couldn't he? None of those things are completely gone from him. I mean, he's, he's still a Hebrew. He's still got his tribal affiliation. He says, but in my mind, in my internal mechanisms, if I begin to lean on those things, that's a detriment to me growing spiritually and truly bringing glory to God in my life. Folks, it's the same thing with us. Praise God for what He's done in your life, spiritually speaking. But don't lean on those things. Don't wave those as banners. In fact, in verse 8, he even describes it as dung. Now literally, rather than think of that as defecation, the Greek word is more of the idea of trash or refuse that was thrown, interestingly enough, to the dogs. That's what the dogs went for, the scrap heap. And you know what? Isn't that what we do? We, we bring nice things into our house from the grocery store. What is it that we take out of our house in trash bags? Well, it's, it's those same things we brought in, but they look very differently now, right? And Paul says, take that mindset when you're looking at all your personal accomplishments. Don't lean, don't glory in your self-accomplishments. Secondly, worshiping in spirit is accompanied by our compulsion to serve without stipulations. Here we're going to flip over to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7 and in verse 6, we see yet another reference to this idea of spirit. Now it doesn't say worship in this case, but the, the thought pattern is still being carried. In Romans 7, 6, it discusses that we are to serve in newness of spirit. And that word serve literally means to be a slave to someone or something. Now, a slave was not someone who was part, ever part of a workers' union. 
Let's get that mindset when we, under, when we hear that term serve. They, they had no rights. His master had absolute full discretion over his actions. What he said, they did. And that's the mindset, Paul says, we need to have when it comes to how we engage in our spirit. He says, now are we delivered from the law. That doesn't mean that we don't see the relevance and the importance of the guidelines that God's moral law has given to us. And that the law is still good if a man uses it lawfully. But we don't lean on our ability to check off those boxes as saying, God is good with me because of my performance in this area. That's what he's warning against. And he is, therefore, Christ delivers us from that mindset, the mindset that so many of the Jewish people had. And by the way, you don't have to be Jewish today to have that mindset. People lean in that same mindset when it comes to their modern-day religious practice. And we say, no, that's not where it lies. Where does it lie? That being dead, wherein we were held, that we should now serve in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Previously, we find ourselves keeping the law, serving the law, but now our motivation, uh, or back then I should say, our motivation was about self-promotion. You know, when these people got together, they were kind of comparing how spiritual they were based upon how well they were keeping the law. And they were almost really doing it with God. God, look at me. I, I could have had an affair with that woman, but I walked away from it. You know, things are not so hot at home, and, you know, and I was really pulled, but I said, no. God, aren't you just, you probably standing up at your throne and cheering for me right now, aren't you, God? You know, there's people that kind of think that way, even if they don't enunciate it just like that. They don't describe it like that. There's something in the back of minds that goes that way. See what I can do. The problem is that with that approach, we become increasingly more dead spiritually. That is not going to lead to a spiritual rejuvenation. That's going to increase spiritual deadness. We might look like we have a more religious polish on the outside, but we are no different than the hypocrites of Jesus' day, who he described as those whited sepulchers, but inside were full of dead man's bones. Just a reminder of what it used to be like. These were beautiful burial vaults. When you'd walk by, it's like, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me, but I, I think that is an attractive burial vault. But, you know, honestly, you know, it might sound a little bit morbid, but probably most of us, if we were honest, Sometimes pulling into a cemetery and you look at how manicured the lawn is and you look at the flowers and you look at the headstones and, and you look at the vaults and things like that and it's like, you know, if, if people didn't think I was a little weird, this would be a great place to come and eat my lunch one day. It's just so pretty here, right? But then you don't, maybe, you know, not just hanging out in cemeteries. Why? Because you realize, yeah, but underneath it all, it's a bunch of dead bodies. And that's kind of creepy and gross, right? And that's what we need to be reminded of when we are 
defaulting to just external religious worship. The law of God was never bad or even flawed. There's nothing wrong with God's law. It's perfect. He made it. What the problem is, is those who are only concerning themselves with the mechanics of what was particularly required, and that fails. Do this, do this, do this, and missing the Spirit behind it. That's what he means in Romans 7, verse 6, the end of that verse, when he talks about the oldness of the letter. You know, dotting my I's, crossing my T's. This is the person that omits the emphasis on having the heart of loyalty and love for the Lord and just points out the the particulars of God's laws like a to-do list that needs checked off. And that's why Jesus began His ministry, if you think about this, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 with the Sermon on the Mount. He comes and says, okay, you want to talk about the particulars of the law? You want to talk about... You know, the to-do list of how I'm doing morally? Let me intensify it a little bit. You know, and, and I'm sure the people were sitting there and their eyeballs were like this big as he was going through the Sermon on the Mount, right? And his whole point of covering all of these areas, interpersonal relationships, marital issues, all that stuff, was to point out, yes, we do need to behave ourselves as God directs, But listen, fundamentally, it comes down to what's going on in your spirit. So give of the first fruits of your increase. That's a biblical thing for all of us to do. Old Testament, New Testament alike. Give of the first fruits of your increase. But do so with a joyful spirit, right? Here's my tithe, I guess. Here's this offering. I'm not just doing it because, you know, the church says. I'm doing it because the Bible says, but... Oh, that's why Paul hits the emphasis. God loves a cheerful giver. He's talking about the Spirit. Be faithful to attend church services. The Bible commands us to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. We ought to do that. But don't leave out the mindset of being ready to receive doctrine when you come. Hey, I want to go to church. Because I want to continue in the apostles' doctrine like they did in Acts 2. I want to hear what the Word of God has to say. I want to be a humble instrument of edification to others. I mean, when I get there, I'm not just standing around. I wonder if anybody will say hi to me. I'm going today, Lord, guide me to someone I can say hi to. Right? That's the spirit of gathering together. And not just lifting up your voice and praise to God, but maybe as we were singing, His robes for mine. We're, you know, what I like to do is kind of picture something that in my mind resembles the Lord Jesus Christ, taking off that robe of righteousness and adorning it, putting it over my sinful, flawed garments. Which were all of my good things. You know, my tattered garments weren't just my sins. It's all my good efforts that I tried to do apart from Christ. And I'm like, Jesus, you did that for me. And that's in my heart. Hopefully that's in your heart. The Lord gave a similar prophecy to the prophet Ezekiel. God promised 
the indwelling of his spirit. It's not just a New Testament concept, by the way, folks. Talk about, well, you know, in the Old Testament they had this, but you read the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes out. The Holy Spirit's throughout the Bible. He just presents his ministry in a little bit different way. But God is foretelling that those that would be indwelt by the Spirit would have a compulsion to serve without giving any stipulations. God, I'll serve you, but here are my qualifications if I'm going to serve you. No. God says, I will serve you, period. Now, what do you want me to do? And notice in Ezekiel 36, 27, there's three actions there. Walk, keep, and do. Here's what it says. And I will put my spirit within you, there you go, and cause you, so there's a divine enablement here, cause you to, number one, walk, that's how we live our lives, and God's statutes, His guidelines. Two, and ye shall keep my judgments. You give careful attention, you're going to have care in your heart about these things. And you'll take it to the next level of execution and do them. Great verse to underline if you're an underliner in your Bible and circle those action words. I'm going to walk and I'm going to keep and I'm going to do. But it's not just because it's my New Year's resolution. It's because the Spirit of God has been implanted in me. And He's the one, and don't miss that big word, cause. The Spirit of God is going to cause that to happen. You know, when we spend significant time and energy focusing on God's love for us. Really just thinking about the gospel. This is why the gospel is so important for Christians to keep focusing on after we get saved. It's not just what you do the night that you prayed and asked Jesus Christ into your heart. It's realizing that, you know, that gospel is also what's keeping me saved in the power of God. But it, it reminds me fresh that though I was an undeserving sinner and I still really mess up badly, so I'm still struggling in my sin, God loves me. And then when we think about that love that God has for us, then what happens? Hopefully our spirit floods with a love back for God. You know, when someone loves you unconditionally, it's kind of natural to feel some level of love back for them, isn't it? I've heard stories, romance stories, where, you know, guy, girl, and it's like, you know, I knew him, but I really had no interest in him. But, and then he says, yeah, he says, but I noticed her, and he says, and I was determined. And so he started doing this, and he started doing that, and he was just one thing after another, just showing unconditional love over and over again, and then she'll say something like this, and finally, he just won me over. Well, guess what? The only reason we love God is because He first, what? Loved us. So you know what a great remedy for falling out of love like the church of Laodicea did and becoming lukewarm is keep yourself in the love of God. Keep focusing on God's love for you. It hasn't changed. If it is dimmed, if it has seemed to disappear, it's because we're not putting our attention back onto its truth that God loves you. And as you do that, you will be flooded in your spirit with the love of God back for Him. When we are then operating in the love of God and following His guidelines in life, 
then those guidelines are not a burden. That's what 1 John 5, 3 is talking about. Notice it says, For this is the love of God. Equal signs. What is it then? That we keep His commandments. Oh God, you're expecting things from me. Really? Is this a performance level relationship? No, don't think of it that way. And you won't think of it that way. Remember everything we just said. The love of God is me keeping His commandments, but His commandments are not what? Grievous. And so you say, but I do feel like sometimes God's commands are grievous. Then that means you're not allowing the understanding of God's love for you to really envelop you like you should. Because if you really let that overwhelm you, then you'll reciprocate with a love back for Him. And you're like, God, please, please tell me what I can do to serve you today. And there's nothing, nothing He can't point to you to do that you'll be like, thank you, Lord. I'm on it by your strength and power. Thirdly and lastly, worshiping in the Spirit is independent of external influences for those that are sincere. Worshiping in spirit is independent of external influences. And this is the verse in John 4.21, and we'll come back to this next week as we talk about the second part of this verse. But what's going on here? Well, the Jews in Jesus' day and prior to this identified with a particular city, Jerusalem, as the place for proper worship. You're going to worship God? You go to the temple. And there were several temples, but they kept getting destroyed and rebuilt. By the time Jesus is here in John 4, it's actually a temple that was rebuilt by a king named Herod. And it was pretty fantastic. And the Jews really admired this. And you might remember the statement when, when the disciples tell Jesus, you know, it's like, hey, take a look at this temple, Lord. And then Jesus makes a comment, you know, he, he'll, he'll then talk about, hey, it can all be toppled down, right? He kind of diminishes what they're all up, up excited about. And then again, this goes to the heart of it. Now, was it wrong to be in Jerusalem and worship? No, that was where God directed Solomon to build the first temple. We understand that. David had it in his heart and so forth. But the point is this. Not just being in the right town makes the difference. So then Jesus in this John 4 passage is talking to the woman at the well. She is, what, what is her ethnicity, folks? She is the woman of Samaria. She's a Samaritan. Did the Jewish people like the Samaritans? No, they didn't. They had disdain. They were considered half-breeds. They had intermarried. There's a history there. And so therefore the Samaritans were outcast, and because they were outcast, they weren't really welcomed in the temple in Jerusalem. Plus, they had to go out of their region into the Jews, and they didn't want to give the Jews the satisfaction of worshiping in their precious town. So they established another worship center in Mount Gerizim. Now, Gerizim had special significance all the way back to the wilderness wanderings where you had the mountains of blessing and cursing, and we won't get into that. But maybe they picked it because they felt like, well, it is a biblical place. And in fact, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, Mount Gerizim was, you know, looming in the horizon. They, she could point to it as she's talking about that mountain. 
the framework of the Jewish worship practice was at least biblical, while the Samaritans knew not what they worshipped. And Jesus tells the woman, there's coming a time that neither, neither of those places, Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, is going to matter a hill of beans. And Jesus then reminds the woman of Samaria that the location of worship is not the critical factor. It's not where you are. And then in verse 23, he says, True, or we would say sincere worshipers, which hopefully we all want to be, sincere worshipers, will worship God in spirit and also truth. But if you have your spirit, folks, and you then also have God's Spirit. You must have both of those. We all have our own spirit. But if you're saved, then you have the indwelling of God's Spirit. You do not need any other outward ingredients to begin worshiping sincerely. You could be locked into a closet in utter darkness, and you can be having a praise fest in there. Can you not? You could be like some of the believers that are shipped off to concentration camps and they're not even allowed to have Bibles. And they're beaten if they sing out loud or whatever. But they feel like those rocks Jesus talked about. And it's like, I've got to cry out. And they may be just crying out from their souls, but they are worshiping in spirit. That's what we must always cling to, folks. We should not feel such an attachment to our geographical location or our facility in order to worship. There's a lot of beautiful cathedrals around this world. I've been to a few of them. And they're amazing, the architectural accomplishments. But we are very misled to think that such a structure is indispensable to the spirit of worship. If you find someone and say, are you worshiping God today? Well, I can't make it to church today, but hopefully by... No, that's not what I asked you. Are you worshiping God today? You don't have to trek down the 3300 Highway 50 to be worship, worshiping God. You do have to come here to gather together and not forsake the assembling together, but worship is something we ought to be engaged in all the time. We are called the called out individuals. That's what church, ekklesia, the Greek word, literally means to call out of. We're called out of the world and called together by its very name. If you're saying the church is important, it means that there is a gathering together of believers. But as we do so, it should primarily be internally focused on sincere worship of God. That's why we're fundamentally here. But the question is, could you meet with believers in a hotel conference room and really worship God? hope so. We did for two years as Anchor Baptist Church. Would you need a certain audiovisual stimuli to worship God? Hopefully you don't. It may help. It may be a nice tool. But you say, oh, you know, the PowerPoint was down today. I just couldn't worship God. Sorry. You know. Need the, 
need the drums and the guitars and the, and the smoke rolling out so I really feel like, you know, I'm... Or could you center your attention on Christ regardless of those things? Can, can you realize He's never left me? He's here. Two and three are gathered together. And in that situation, wherever it might be, it might be in the woods someday, folks. I don't know where this country is headed, but we might be like Cold War Russia someday, and we might have to somehow pass around that we're meeting out in the middle of the woods discreetly, and we can fall down on our hearts before Him and exalt Him. Should that not be the case? It should. We won't take the time to turn there, but I would encourage you, maybe as follow-up, maybe this afternoon, is check out Psalm 145. David wrote Psalm 145. The Bible tells us while he was hiding in the cave of Adullam, he was on the run from Saul. This was, this was not necessarily the kind of setting where you would say uh, a person would naturally get up every morning and say, it's a great day to be alive, you know. Yeah, someone's out to kill me. And yes, I have to be laying on this hard mat in a damp cave, wondering if there's going to be other creatures that come in here and snuggle up with me or whatever. Yet in this very, and to say the least, awkward location, as you read Psalm 145, you can detect his spirit of worship. For instance, in verse 3, he says, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, Then thou knewest my path. Some of you may feel like your spirit's overwhelmed with you, in you sometimes. God knows the path you're on. God has a path. Rejoice and be in it, whether it takes you into a palace or takes you into a cave. That thought caused him to reach out to God in faith and hope, and, he, and then he says in verse 5, I cried unto thee, O Lord, I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. He is not allowing his circumstances and his situation and his location to be master over him, is he? And neither should we, folks. He's worshiping in spirit. You know, you may be unable to come, some of you are listening by live stream. Some of you are unable to come to church, or some of you can't even get out of bed. Understand that. But that does not mean that your spirit is disabled, right? Your spirit is still very enabled. And so I would say to us, whether we're in this room today, or whether we're watching, you're shut in, whatever your situation, wherever you may be, Worship God. Worship Him in your spirit and worship Him in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. May God help us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, the reminders to us that we not allow anything to quench the abundant life that you have for us in Christ. And while worship is what you deserve, and we owe it to you, Lord, we will begin to understand that we will never have joy in ourselves. We will never have abundance in our own souls unless we are engaged and yielded 
spirit-filled worship, not just when we come together in this building, but as we make our way through daily life experience. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd remind us of these things and may these things attach themselves to our minds and our hearts. And, Lord, may we do them. May we yield to them. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.